Hey there, I'm T.G. Brandfault, and you are listening to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. The Gondrepreneur.com podcast gives us an opportunity to speak directly with entrepreneurs and experts who are working on the front lines of the industry to normalize cannabis through responsible business, education, and activism. As your host, I will do my best to try to bring you actionable information to help you plan, grow, and manage your cannabis business. Uh, today, I'm joined by Hadley Ford, co-founder and CEO of Ianthus Capital Holdings. Uh, how are you doing today, Mr. Ford? Very well, TJ. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Um, I start these interviews with uh, talking about the background of my guests, uh, but through my research, uh, I found uh, an article that talks about your experience in Europe. Uh, so before we get into your background, uh, why don't you tell us about uh, about what you did in Europe? About my uh, my checkered past, come the revolution. Um, I was uh, I was an aspiring chemical engineer at the University of Rochester, and uh, was thrown out of that school. Uh, that's a story for another time with a beer in front of us or something, uh, something else to consume. Um, I then spent the next five years hitchhiking around Europe uh, in the United States, living in communes, and I had you know, hair halfway down my back and come the revolution and all that good stuff, and uh, had to find a way to support myself. So I was a street performer as a juggler and did some big form magic as well, pulling ropes through people and things like that. And... Uh, just, just sort of lived outside the grid for uh, five-ish years. So now you're uh, now now you're applying sort of magic to a, a whole new <laughs> industry, um, and a lot of juggling, a lot of juggling as well. Of course, of course. Um, so, so now, kind of tell us, you know, how you ended up uh, getting into the financial and healthcare industry. <laughs> Well, it's, it's the usual path of anyone who's going to go work on Wall Street that you have to be a, a long-haired uh, anarchist uh, living in communes. Um, it was it was quite a quite a turnaround. You know, I I had thought that was the, the path I was going to be on for uh, the rest of my life, but you know, life had different uh, had different aspirations for me, and sort of one turn at a time uh, occurred, and I found myself back in the United States, and I found myself uh, uh, kind of taking night classes up in Boston at Boston University, and then I stumbled into some accounting classes, and I liked that. And next thing you know, I was uh, a finance major at Boston University, and after that I became a research analyst at Fidelity, and then went back to uh, business school at Stanford and was recruited out at First Boston, got recruited away to join Goldman, and worked uh, at Goldman really on the, uh, both the principal side for a while and then also the corporate finance and M&A side, mostly media and telecom. Um, and then I left that and did a little content delivery startup and competed against Akamai, sold that company, and then rejoined Bank of America as head of the tech group out of New York um, and did that for about three years. I got a phone call from an old client of mine at Goldman. He claimed his father had found a way to cure cancer. And uh, would I sit down with him and figure out how he could finance that? So I sat down, and I was so enamored of both the uh, both of his father and the business plan that I I quit my job, uh, Bank of America, and the plushly appointed offices there, and waded into start up a company called Procure Treatment Centers, which ultimately became the largest provider of proton therapy in the world. 
We raised about $800 million privately and saved thousands of lives. Unfortunately, we depended very heavily on debt capital for the growth of that company. The debt crisis hit. We didn't have access to growth capital. We ran it as an operating company for three or four years. And then I wanted to do something that was more growth-oriented. So I had an amicable separation and went off to see what the next big opportunity could be. Around that time, I got a phone call from a guy I'd done a lot of business with when I was at Goldman. Actually, we had invested in his company and taken on public, sat on his board. And he said, uh, called me out of the blue and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking for the next big thing. And he said, I found the next big thing. And I said, what's that? And when I dealt with him before, he had been emerging telecom. He'd done some internet stuff. He'd done some virtual currency companies. So I was expecting you know, ones and zeros. Instead, he says cannabis. And I laughed and he said, you know, why are you laughing? It's a $50 billion industry moving from black to white. And I said, I'm laughing because my brother is already the largest provider of medical cannabis in New Mexico. And my sister is one of four licensed operators in Vermont, it's kind of the family business. And he said, well, you're an entrepreneur. Why aren't you in the family business? And I said, well, I'm not really convinced that there's a national opportunity right now. It's a very good business on a local basis. You get a license and you uh, finance it with your friends and family and you've got a good a good business you join the country club and uh, it's very respectable but how do you scale that you can't ship product across state lines you can't even get a trademark or a copyright on your name I don't know how you scale it nationally so this fellow Randy who's now my partner said well we always liked working with each other why don't we figure something out so we traveled around the uh, country went to conferences met with operators and determined two things which we may have been able to determine an afternoon with a, uh, uh, a six pack but um, the first is that there's no regular way institutional capital available to the uh, cannabis entrepreneur in the United States so if you're fortunate enough to have a license you had no access to um, institutional capital for starting your business, growing your business, buying out your partner, or if you wanted to sell your business, the acquirer didn't have acquisition finance either. The second piece is because you don't have access to institutional capital. You didn't see all the usual camp followers you'd see in a growth industry. So you didn't have you know, a lot of accountants, lawyers, consultants, advisors who were there. So you had this weird anomaly where the entrepreneur has a license but has you know, none of the usual uh, factors of um, company building available to him or her. And we thought, that sounds pretty easy. We'll just set up a little merchant bank, raise two, $300 million, charge two and 20. And you know, we both built big companies. We'll go in and help people build companies and provide financing for it. But for the same reason that Citibank wasn't going to write a prime plus two loan for someone's greenhouse, they weren't going to get CalPERS or Toronto teachers to give you a $30 million blank check into a $300 million fund. So we kind of scratched our head about the supply side of the equation for a while. And then we discovered the Canadian public markets, which are really the only capital market in the world, public or private, that has shown a willingness to provide financing for cannabis operators. Now, they happen to be Canadian operators and they happen to be Canadian investors. But our supposition was that we could structure something, raise money publicly in Canada educate the uh, investor there about the opportunities in the U.S. and then flow that money into uh, support the U.S. cannabis entrepreneur. So that's, that's sort of the CV that gets me from juggling in Europe and you know living in communes all the way to providing uh, institutional capital for entrepreneurs in the cannabis space today. And how um, 
So, so let's get right into some of the the kind of financials here. You know, what what is the importance of harnessing the right skills to support a diversified portfolio of cannabis industry investments for shareholders? Well, I think you know if you're if you're a, an investor, sort of a public market security investor, and you say, "Gee, I see this tremendous growth opportunity where." It was really unprecedented where you've got a $50 billion market that's, you know, think of that as a reservoir of cash and someone opens up the sluice gate and all that cash is flowing from, you know, illegal owners to you know, entrepreneurs who've been licensed with background checks and sort of a built in 30% growth for the, the, uh, you know, the next 10 years. Um, but there's no real way for the public investor to uh, you know, sort of access that growth opportunity. So they're going to say, geez, what, what public companies are there that I can invest in? Well, you can invest in the Canadian guys, but they don't have any real exposure to the U.S. market. And then you look at the U.S. public stocks, and you've probably got 250 companies that used to be Joe's Mining Company that you know, renamed themselves you know, Joe's Cannabis Company. And then you've got sort of a handful of companies that are, you know, what I would call, you know, operating companies with management teams and operations that, you know, kind of are small cap. And what you want to make sure from an investment perspective is that those management teams actually have the uh, appropriate backgrounds and excellence and skill sets that, you know, you can trust them to actually go execute and make a dollar for you from an investment perspective. So what we offer the, uh, the sort of the retail or institutional investor from a public security perspective is a team that has actually, uh, you know, worked within the world of finance and corporate, uh, uh, uh corporate governance and regulation and real estate. Um, then, you know, I think people can take, um, uh, you know, sort of great confidence that when we diligence something or structure something that's being done in the same form or fashion that they would expect, you know, someone from uh, Sand Hill Road or Wall Street to do. So from an investment perspective, you know, I think it provides, um, you know, security that uh, the, the cash you're putting to work is going to be put to work in a, in a prudent and effective manner. So it's really just want to see all those skill sets. If someone's actually going to be investing money in cannabis, you know, you want to make sure that they, you know, have the background of diligence and modeling and you know, legal and regulatory and you know, documents and all that sort of good stuff. Because um, our view is, you know, cannabis expertise are kind of the, the table stakes, right? And we've got a vast network of people who help us diligence the cannabis piece of it. But then the value add piece becomes how do you deal with regulation, real estate, making sure you have enough money to build your model out, things like that. And, you know, that's the expertise we bring to the table. How much in the early going did you rely on your family to kind of help you navigate uh, this industry? A hundred percent, right? I mean, it's a, it's a brand new industry. Um, you, know, you just really have to have someone you can trust who can educate you on the ins and outs and quirks that, you know, kind of the daily uh, daily stuff you face in the cannabis industry. So, you know, the, the idea that, I actually had family members that were in the business and they could uh, help get me up the curve on things that you have to be aware of and think about uh, was invaluable. Um, and then you know, that also allowed us to have that as a, a launching pad from a, um, an investment perspective to raise the initial capital because you know, it's nice to have a good idea, but it's a lot better if you actually uh, have some uh, 
uh, you know, have some investments that you're already making. Um, so, you know, I would say without their involvement, um, there, there wouldn't be an Ianthus. Uh, it was a nice intersection point or Venn diagram, as you were, where I had two siblings who were cannabis experts and they had a sibling who was a, a financial expert. And that's a nice combination. It's a confluence of events that was very fortunate for uh, both them and for, for me. So moving to kind of a bigger picture, uh, what, what, what's your take on the experience of innovative industrial properties? Uh, they're that real estate investment trust that was focused on cannabis industry properties. Uh, you know, they were approved for a listing on the New York Stock Exchange in November. They had to reduce that IPO uh, goal from 175 million to 100 million. They cut their number of shares offered by more than half from 8.75 to 4 million. Um, why do you think that this failed to gain the traction that it anticipated on this major market? Yeah, well, I'd say a couple of things. I'd say, one, the big positive, and I was surprised, right, that the, the New York Stock Exchange approved it for listing. I mean, that is a great vote of confidence for the, um, you know, kind of the future of cannabis and the, the capital markets, because, you know, you're probably aware that NASDAQ has repeatedly denied uh, listing um, applications to their exchange. Um, and, you know, and ultimately, the Canadian market is a fine place to raise capital now, but the U.S. market is going to be vast and large and need a lot more capital than probably Canadian markets can provide over time. So you do need to have a working uh, capital market, public market down here in the U.S. to effectively support the growth of the industry. So I think that is a great positive takeaway. Now, you know, technically, why you know, would they go from 175 to 100? Well, the people who are involved in innovative industrial have had great success in the past in other industries, you know, healthcare REITs and things like that. And I think their probably anticipation was that you'd have much more institutional participation in a deal. Now, I didn't see the book and how it was allocated, but my guess would be they had zero institutional interest. Very hard to do an all retail deal of $175 million. Matter of fact, I was talking with people about the deal before it actually went out and marketed or before they tried to price it. And I think everyone was of the same view that from a, just a pure retail allocation, they were going to be well south of $100 million on or being able to get um, capital out of the market. So it wasn't a surprise uh, to, uh, to me or really any of the, the kind of bankers who were watching the deal that it didn't raise the type of capital it wanted to originally. But I think what it did do is set precedent that you know there is an actual cannabis business model listed on the New York Stock Exchange, and it'll be up to them to execute. And if they execute, I think they'll be able to raise more retail money. And my expectation would be that you know sometime in the next year or two, you start to see institutions play as well as they become more comfortable with the concept of uh, you know, cannabis within the public markets in the U.S. Do you feel that this political climate is safe to invest in? We've got, you know, Jeff Sessions, who has been a, you know, outspoken opponent of uh, legalization, and you know, there's really been no movement on a federal level for a comprehensive medical program or, um, you know, any sort of major reforms. So, you know, what 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 is your kind of feeling about this political climate in terms of investments? Well, I'm kind of torn, right? Because as a provider of capital 
Um, I like people to think it's a wild and dangerous place, so it keeps out other providers of capital. Um, but you know, rather than play the game theory and say, yes, it's very dangerous, don't come into it. You know, I'll, I'll give you the, the straight up thought of how I think about it, because I get this question all the time. Um, you know, I don't lose any sleep over it. You know, let's, let's call a spade a spade here, right? I mean, it is, it's against the law at the federal level. If you go back and look at the, uh, you know, what Loretta Lynch or Eric Holder said about cannabis and their confirmation, actually worse than what Sessions said. You know, at least Sessions showed some, you know, sort of said, okay, there's the Cole memo and I have to, you know, I have to uh, uh, undertake my sworn duty to um, enforce the laws of the United States. But it's a matter of, um, you know, it's a matter of resources and the Cole memo is informative. Go back and look at what Loretta Lynch said. Right? She said it's against the law, and you know where we see ca- cannabis, we see violence. You know, it's like that. It, it, it would make your your feet go cold. And you know, frankly, the Obama administration they weren't great friends of cannabis. I mean, I didn't. I didn't. You know, eight years, I didn't see anything get uh, rescheduled or descheduled or decriminalized. Um, you know, the Cole memo came out. That was nice, uh, but you know, there was no as you point out, proactive movement in that, that direction. And, you know, frankly, you know, I think if you go back and look at sort of what the industry thought about Obama's, the Obama administration's view on cannabis, I think there was great disappointment that there wasn't a more proactive stance. I don't have any expectation that the Trump administration is going to be proactive, but uh, I don't have any fear that they're going to sort of send the feds in to shut stuff down. I, I just think it's way down the list of things that are important to the administration. And I do think that many uh, within the transition team and you know, many of the appointees are states' rights. And um, you know that's the way it's going to go. I, I expect for the next four years, you're going to have this uneasy um, you know, peace between the federal government and the states, but that that's you know, going to be business as usual. There has been sort of a little pause from at least my understanding. We're not, you know, we're not in the business of raising private capital, but a lot of the guys we're talking with are, and they sort of give us feedback that there's been a little bit of pause in the ability to raise private capital. But yeah, I don't, I don't think anyone thinks you're going to see a, a proactive uh, rollback of anything at this juncture. So I want to talk to you a bit about uh, government, the Canadian government that is being proactive. But before we get to that, we got to take a short break. This is the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. I'm T.G. Brandfault. This episode of the Gondrepreneur.com podcast is made possible by Name.com, a global provider of domain name, web hosting and email services. Every successful cannabis business needs an online presence, and every successful online presence begins with a domain. From your website to your email address, a good domain is easy for your customers to remember, it looks nice on a business card or billboard, and it reflects the true identity of the project it represents. It's important to reserve your domain early on when you are starting your business, as you may find that the .com address for your preferred brand or concept has already been taken. If somebody has already purchased the ideal.com for your business, they might be willing to sell it. But if they aren't, you may have to get creative with one of the new alternate domain extensions, such as .co, .club, .shop, or even .farm. 
Reserve your domain name today at name.com slash gondrepreneur. If you are a domain name investor or venture capital firm interested in acquiring or advertising premium cannabis domains, go to the Gondrepreneur domain market to browse a wide variety of names, including strains.com, cannabismedia.com, mj.com, and countless others. Discover branding opportunities for your next startup and learn about listing your premium domain names for sale at gondrepreneur.com slash domains, sponsored by name.com. Hey, welcome back to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. I'm your host, T.G. Brandfault, here with Hadley Ford, co-founder and CEO of Ianthus Capital Holdings. Uh, before the break, we were talking a bit about the U.S. Uh, federal government and, you know, kind of their inaction under the Obama administration and, and what we expect to see under Trump. Um, but your company, you know, as you mentioned, you're publicly traded in Canada. The, the federal government there is expected to announce legalization plans this spring. Um, what do you anticipate... Not just the market, but the regulations looking like under Canada's plan. You know, that's a that's a great question. Uh, we're publicly listed up there. We focus primarily on the U.S. market, so I don't pay too much attention to investment opportunities up there. But you know, I'm generally aware of what's been going on. Uh, and I was actually just at a conference uh, where this very question came up. I think first off it's probably going to take longer than what people are anticipating. You know, people are saying, oh, gee, it's going to be very quick. My guess it's going to take a year or two to sort of work through Health Canada and all the regulations and all. And, you know, my expectation is that, uh, you know, the government is going to have a bigger role in it than, you know, maybe people anticipate. You know, I just, I'm not, uh, I'm not Canadian, but I spend a lot of time up there and, you know, you see that the government uh, has a hand in sort of the sale and distribution of alcohol for recreational use. My guess is they're going to want to play a role like that uh, from the cannabis perspective uh, as well. You know, I also think, you know, if they have the same type of stringent um, production and oversight requirements they have from a medical perspective, that they may have some pricing issues and concerns from uh, the recreational perspective. Um you know, it may just keep the price uh, uh, at a at a rate that doesn't really displace the black market. But you know, we'll we'll see. It'll play out through time. It'll be absolutely fascinating to see you know, kind of how the politics are played and who gets to capture the margin and kind of what regulations get laid out on uh, the production side of it. Um, and I do think, from a capital formation perspective, you know, anything that sort of increases the interest from a Canadian perspective, increases the number of investors who are actively participating in the market up there, helps reduce our cost of capital and allows us to make that money available to the, uh, the U.S. Uh, entrepreneur. So in a strange way, you know, anything that's bullish and positive in Canada, it will have a positive effect for the, uh, uh, kind of the, the cannabis entrepreneurs down here as it sort of trickles through the capital markets. Do you think that, that it might force the hand of the U.S. legislature uh, because now you would have, you know, our neighbor with legal adult use cannabis? Yeah, you know, I think, I think all these you know, kind of flags that get planted are all you know, part of a general trend. You know, whatever analogy people use, genie out of the bottle or rock rolling downhill. You know, you've got 
upwards of a quarter of the United States uh, will now have access to you know, full adult use cannabis when the regs get written over the next year or two. Um, you know, you you kind of run through all the different states that either have full medical programs or high CBD programs, and you have close to 90% of the U.S. population uh, has access to some form uh, of cannabis. Um, you know, it can only be helpful uh, to that direction if um, a well-respected uh, northern neighbor, our, our largest trading partner, and, uh, um, you know, someone who's been an ally of the United States for a couple of you know, 150 years is going to be moving in that direction. You know, that that's only a positive. So, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I, I think it just continues to move in that direction. I, you know, I don't, I don't know that, you know, they vote full wreck for the whole country and all of a sudden the U S is going to be doing the same thing, but it's clearly a, a positive indicator and, you know, keeps the momentum going the right way. So in what U.S. states uh, have you made investments? Uh, we are in uh, Vermont, New Mexico, Massachusetts, and Colorado, and sort of on any given day, we're in discussions in sort of a half dozen other states. And, you know, uh, Massachusetts's recreational, recreational program is expected to be huge, uh, you know, due to its proximity to New York City, uh, you know, and Boston's supposed to be a huge market. Colorado is... You know, I mean, they're just rolling, um, you know, so why don't you tell me a bit about, you know, New Mexico and Vermont? You know, Vermont is such a small state that, you know, as an investor, if you're aiming at a big money market, it, it, it kind of seems counterintuitive. Um, well, yeah, and, and, and we typically look for things that I would call, you know, our oligopoly situations, and that can be set up either in a town, a region, a state. It can be a license holder in a limited license market. It could be a market share leader in a more competitive market. Uh, but we look for, you know, situations exactly as you point out, where there's a good growth opportunity and you know, good returns on the capital we put to work. So if you look at Vermont, the medical market's really nothing to write home about from a size perspective. You've got you know, three-ish thousand registered patients and four licensed operators who are divvying that up. But if you look at it from a full recreational perspective, you know, Rand came in and did a study for the state and estimated the in-state market to be $100 million. Now, if the full rec program, they don't have a referendum process in Massachusetts, has to go through you know, the legislature there, but... You know, every time that's been put forth last year, year before, it's kind of made it through the Senate and bogged down in the House. Um, you know, at some point, you know, Vermont will be full wreck. I think it polls 80 percent among the population. And if you're one of a limited number of license holders and sort of every form of the bill and every anticipation is that if you have an existing license, you'll be able to participate in the uh, uh, the new market and probably have either an explicit or implicit head start because you already have infrastructure and grow and processing and locations in place. Um, you know, $100 million market for license holders, that's a pretty big market. <laughs> that's a good opportunity. Plus 13 million tourists go to Vermont uh, uh, every year. Um, so, you know, we like the returns. Uh, you know, obviously the returns in bigger markets um, uh, can be bigger. So, you know, you look at a New Mexico, 2 million residents, the same type of thing. We're invested with the market share leader there. Um, and you know, there's good growth. And I think ultimately that's probably a full rec state. You know, sort of unclear when that happens, although 
probably is more likely now that the House representatives is now Democratic rather than a Republican in the state. Um, and then, uh, you know, you look at a, a state like Massachusetts, you kind of have the best of all possible worlds. You have a much larger market, six, seven million uh, person population, you know, 40 million people within a 250 mile drive of Boston. Um, and, you know, just because of the way the states put the process in place, limited number of licenses. So, you know, that that's an ideal market and value creator for us. Uh, Colorado different opportunity completely. You've got probably the, from a regulatory perspective, the most mature market in the United States. Um, you've got, uh, you know, 1.2, 1.3 billion of legal sales in the last 12 months. You've got 600 storefronts, maybe 400 operators that control that, you know, very, uh, very fragmented market. So we think there's a great opportunity if you have the capital uh, to actually help consolidate and grow that market. Um, and you know, that's how we view Colorado. So, you know, we're opportunistic on uh, how we put our capital to work. You know, it's four different markets with four different opportunities. But, you know, I think they they all come down to uh, the same piece. Can we put money to work? Is there an oligopoly type situation we could take advantage of? And are we going to have uh, good returns for our shareholders' money? And the answer in all four of those markets is yes. So you had mentioned this this. Uh oligopoly system um, as, as would you say that this is the best system for investment compared to say a, a, a Michigan market which um, still kind of operates in a gray sort of uh, sector yeah you know we we won't um, we won't invest in a state unless it has a you know a good state regulatory uh, structure that we think abides by the coal memo. So, you know, we haven't made investments in uh, California or Michigan. It just, there's just too much risk around that from our perspective. <laughs> it sounds funny. And we, here we are investing in something federally illegal and we're saying there's too much risk. But, it, you know, I think, you know, even under the Obama administration, which is supposed to be kind of this you know, friendly counterpoint to Trump, the feds were very active in hassling people in both those states and you know, people went to jail. Uh, in both those states under the Obama administration. That's not a good headline for us to sort of take our investors' money, invest in something, and you know, then have it shut down uh, because you're not abiding by the coal memo. So, you know, until someone actually drafts the full state regs, we're going to be on the sidelines. Doesn't mean we're not looking. We probably have active conversations in those states on a kind of a weekly basis. We kind of know the players. We know what we would do. But we want to wait until the uh, the path is um you know, set within the uh, the constructs of the coal memo. So I want to talk to you a bit more about Vermont, but before that, we got to take one more short break. I'm T.G. Brandfault. This is the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. At Gontrepreneur, we have heard from dozens of cannabis business owners who have encountered the issue of canna bias, which is when a mainstream business whether a landlord, bank, or some other provider of vital business services, refuses to do business with them simply because of their association with cannabis. We have even heard stories of businesses being unable to provide health and life insurance for their employees because the insurance providers were too afraid to work with them. 
We believe that this fear is totally unreasonable and that cannabis business owners deserve access to the same services and resources that other businesses are afforded, that they should be able to hire consultation to help them follow the letter of the law in their business endeavors, and that they should be able to provide employee benefits without needing to compromise on the quality of coverage they can offer. This is why we created the Gondrepreneur.com Business Service Directory, a resource for cannabis professionals to find and connect with service providers who are cannabis-friendly and who are actively seeking cannabis industry clients. If you are considering hiring a business consultant, lawyer, accountant, web designer, or any other ancillary service for your business, go to gondrepreneur.com businesses to browse hundreds of agencies, firms, and organizations who support cannabis legalization and who want to help you grow your business. With so many options to choose from in each service category, you will be able to browse company profiles and do research on multiple companies in advance so you can find the provider who is the best fit for your particular need. Our business service directory is intended to be a useful and well-maintained resource, which is why we individually vet each listing that is submitted. If you are a business service provider who wants to work with cannabis clients, you may be a good fit for our service directory. Go to gondrepreneur.com businesses to create your profile and start connecting with cannabis entrepreneurs today. Hey, welcome back. I'm TG Brandfault. This is the Gontrepreneur.com podcast. I'm here with Hadley Ford, co-founder and CEO of Ianthus Capital Holdings. Uh, before the break, we were talking about the states uh, in which you have invested in and, and your reasoning for making those investments. Um, I'm, I'm sure that you've spoken to a lot of people in Vermont. You have investments there. Your, your, your sister runs a dispensary there. Um, what are people kind of expecting in terms of recreational legalization? I know that, you know, the last bill was seen by many as a flawed, as flawed, um, which is why it wasn't passed. Not because it was recreational, but because the bill was bad. Um, so, so what are you kind of getting, what, what's your sense from talking to people on the ground? Well, yeah, you know, I start from the people, right? You know, I go back to my uh, come the revolution days. The people want it, right? I mean, you got the, it pulls 80%. Let's go full rack. And then the rest of it, I forget the author that said this, but, you know, you never want to watch sausage or laws get made. Um, it's political horse trade. They don't have a referendum uh, process in, uh, in Vermont. It's you know, kind of one of 14 or 15 states that don't have that process to sort of change the law. So you have to go through the legislature and, there's just horse trading, right? I mean, it, it's, it almost doesn't have anything to do with cannabis at, at some juncture. You know, you need, you need votes at the committee level, and you need votes, you know, in the House, you need votes in the Senate. And it looks, you know, I was up there last year, you know, testifying and sort of in the halls of power. And people are, people are making trades. I'll vote for you on this if you vote for me on that. And it's just, you know, political, uh, uh, po- you know, political machinations as usual. So, you know, my expectation is eventually you will have a bill. It'll get passed. Um, yeah, I don't have a particular view on what that will look like because I don't know what, you know, what deals and trades get made. You know, someone needs a bridge in their town and that's how you get their vote. So, but I assume it'll be full wreck at some point. Um, you know, I guess it's probably, you know, I would, I don't know what the odds are this year. There are people putting forth, you know, forms of the bill. Um, but you'll get something this year, next year. And I think, you know, when you talked before about pressure from, you know, surrounding uh, uh, governments, you know, whether it's Canada to the north of them or Massachusetts to the south of them, you know, eventually 
you know, I think that the pressure will come down on the politicians. They have to do something, and they will. Changing gears a little bit, um, I want to talk to you about the role that big business uh, should have in the cannabis space. You know, I, I have a lot of conversations with a lot of people, and the, the overwhelming sense that I get is, you know, it was a lot of activists who stuck their neck out on the line and got arrested, and, you know, in the early days of this market, and, you know, so they have a lot of fear about big business uh, entering the cannabis space. You know, some of these fears are, are, are valid and some maybe, you know, maybe not so much, but you've worked on Wall Street and in the healthcare sector, both, you know, certainly big business. Um, is this something that should worry current industry professionals? And, you know, what role should or do you see big business having in, in this space? Yeah, I'm not sure really what that means. You know, I, I hear that big weed, big business. I mean, I was up in Vermont testifying in front of the Senate committee, and they said, oh, we're worried about big weed. You're big weed. I'm like, I'm just one guy. It was like my brother and my sister in the business, and they said, hey, we need money. I'm like, okay, I know how to raise money. I'll see if I can get you some. You know, that, is that big weed? That'd be as if they called up and said, hey, we need computers or we need a car. Capital is just one factor of success when you're an entrepreneur, it's an absolute necessity. And I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs understand that, you know, they, they need the capital. And I think the worst thing you could do, and I, I think it's, you could probably go find this. I think it's on record. <laughs> when I was talking to the Senate committee, I said, the worst thing you can do if you want to have a strong, vibrant cannabis business and allow entrepreneurs who you know, have a passion and love for this to be successful, is to not give them enough money because an undercapitalized entrepreneur is ripe for the picking from, you know, kind of Anheuser Bush or uh, Philip Morris, right? If you're undercapitalized and you can't compete, you're in a bad competitive position. But if you have sort of unfettered access to capital and you're living in Vermont or Colorado or Massachusetts, you can build a real business. Right, because these other guys aren't there yet. You know, Anheuser Busch and Philip Morris and KKR and Goldman Sachs—they're not there. The big banks, the big operators, the big consumer goods companies aren't there. So now is the time for the cannabis entrepreneur to build a lasting network, a lasting brand, a lasting business with great customer and patient care. But you can't do that unless you have capital. So. You know, I, I think sort of having you know, less restrictions on the capital aspect of it, less restrictions on that ability for the entrepreneur to tap into money uh, is very bullish and, you know, is in keeping with both my own background of you know, <laughs> going back to the initial question of, you know, being a street performer. And I think, it, I think it's in keeping with uh, kind of the, you know, the, the original people on the front lines here who you know, tore down the walls of uh, uh, and allowed cannabis to become the business it is today. The money piece you know, makes it a level playing field against the big boys. And you know, they, should, they should be welcoming of anyone who can provide capital in an industry in support of the, the entrepreneurs today, because now is the time to build a lasting business before the big guys come in. Did that answer your question? Absolutely. Would it worry you as, you know, a person who provides capital to, you know, smaller operators if, say, a Philip Morris or an Anheuser-Busch were to enter the space in, in one of the states where you have investments? 
You know, that's a good question. Um, it depends how they entered. You know, I, I do think that, you know, cannabis today is so fragmented and still trying to figure out the business models that kind of the craft end of it still has a lot of value. And you know, I just think it'd be tough for those guys to come in and compete on that craft basis today. Um, I also don't think that those players would have really any advantage of scale today because there's no real scale players. So, you know, I think, um, you know, if you had a really good, strong operator and that's what we think our partners are, you know, we'd probably write more checks in support of them so they could you know, compete on the margin against those guys. Um, you know, I think the bigger thing that would be worrisome from our business model is we woke up tomorrow and, you know, Trump completely decriminalized it and Citibank was offering, you know, prime plus two loans. Now, that would be very beneficial to the partners that we have already because now they'd have access to debt capital at cheap rates and could grow a lot faster. But, um, you know, it would probably limit the opportunities for us to put capital to work. You know, right now, essentially, when people need capital, it's really just you know, we're, we're providing the entire capital structure for them. Um, you know, I think if Citibank were lending a lot of money, uh, we'd all really only be providing the equity piece of the capital structure. Now, there'd be levered returns, so our returns would probably be better, but there'd be smaller checks that we'd be writing. So, you know, if someone needed $7 million to build out the operation, they could, you know, right now we give them the whole seven and we get a nice return on the seven. If Citibank were around, maybe Citibank gives them five, you know, we'd only provide two. Now we'd get a better return on that too, because it would be a levered return, but you'd only be putting 2 million to work instead of seven. Um, but you know, look, I have no illusions that the market's going to be uh, free of competition in the long haul. And, you know, as I go back to our point to pick your management team, you know, we've got a pretty smart team, been very successful in a lot of industries. You know, I think we're very flexible and can move quickly. It's a huge market, and we'll figure out a way how we get uh, how we make money. And what advice would you have for you know the the greenest you know no pun intended inexperienced <laughs> investor? Um, from a public perspective or a private perspective? So the both. Public, uh, both. Public, uh, well, let's start with public. Both. Yeah, from a private perspective, uh, you know, be prepared to do a lot of work and, you know, don't just sort of throw your money into something. This is a real business. Uh, it is complicated. It's tricky. You've got a lot of regulatory piece. Um, so, you know, unless you're prepared to you know, hire lawyers and accountants and spend a couple of months making sure T's are crossed and I's are dotted, probably not a place to wade in from a private perspective. Now, a lot of guys do, and you know, some will make money and some will lose money. But, you know, I think if you're serious about getting a return and you're allocating some portion of your portfolio to it, you know, there's going to be a lot of you should expect a lot of ancillary expenses around your diligence process that you wouldn't get if you were you know, investing in a local bakery or something. Um, you know, I think from a public perspective, uh, it's such a nascent industry that you really want to understand who the management team is that you're backing. So, you know, you look at the United States, you know, I've encountered them up recently. There's probably 300 companies that, you know, align themselves with being in cannabis. And, you know, I think you could probably take 250 to 270 of those and say, 
they're probably not worth looking at. <laughs> it used to be a, a mining shell and someone, you know, wrote a business plan and changed the name. Um, and then, you know, you've probably got a, a dozen or two guys that are, you know, have real businesses that have revenue that derive from cannabis. You know, I would look at the management team. I think the market opportunity is so huge that if you pick the right management team, from a public perspective, you know, they'll figure out a way to make money for you. So, you know, do that work, right? Go, go online, see what the names are, Google them up, make sure they have a you know, kind of a background of excellence and a background of success and see if their backgrounds actually fit to what they're saying their model is. So, you know, you look at us, you know, not, not to use it as a, a way to tout our own stuff, but, you know, we say we're financing cannabis. Okay, well, who do we have on our team? Guys who worked in finance and law and real estate, and that kind of fits with the model. Do they have a track record of excellence? Yes, they've been successful in sort of multiple other, you know, forays in their careers. You know, that that gives you a level of comfort um, in a very nascent business because, you know, we don't, no one's got a 10-year track record in cannabis that you can validate from a public disclosure perspective. So you're, you're taking a little bit of a flyer on that. And I think uh, understanding the team and pitching that team is probably the, the starting point for how you want to invest on the public side. So let me ask you, where do you see the cannabis industry, say, by 2020? I don't anticipate anything in the next four years, three years at the federal level that's going to change things. Um, I think you'll continue to see uh, certain states move towards uh, medical that haven't put a vibrant program in place. You'll see additional states adopt uh, full rec. You know, you already have people talking about it in Rhode Island and Maryland and Vermont. Um, So you'll continue to see that uh, trend uh, as we go forward. I think you'll also see, and maybe this is just my believing my own rhetoric, but I think you'll see sort of a, a loosening of some of the constraints around capital in these states. You know, a lot of the states say, gee, you can only control this number of licenses. You, know, you have to be a resident of this or that. You know, they, they, they put all these sort of factors in from a capital perspective because they're worried about I don't know what they're worried about. I guess, you know, big, big weed coming in. <laughs> but I think, you know, I think ultimately, you know, we've seen a trend that way too. You know, you had ownership restrictions in Washington. They fell away. You had very stringent restrictions in Oregon and they've loosened those. You know, Colorado has moved. You used to have to be a Colorado resident. Now you can be a U.S. resident. So, you know, I think as people recognize, as the politicians and regulatory overlords recognize the uh, benefits just from not just the social aspect, but the economic aspects of jobs and taxes that cannabis brings to a state, um, you know, they'll say, gee, it's kind of silly to put restrictions on the capital. You know, as an analog, I would look to California and Silicon Valley, right? I mean, they have no restrictions on capital there. Um, and they've created, you know, just a huge engine of growth and economic development with, you know, tech investment. There's no reason Denver shouldn't play that same role within cannabis, other than the fact that public companies can't invest in companies in Denver. Whereas if they, you know, they, they had um, that restriction removed, uh, you know, I think you could go from 18,000 uh, employees in cannabis in Colorado to you know, 36,000, or you know, it could look like the Sand Hill Road of, uh, uh, of cannabis. So, you know, I would see that trend continue. Um, 
you know, you might, you know, if, if this guy O'Neill gets appointed the head of the FDA, maybe there's a rescheduling of, um, uh, of cannabis so that you're going to see some more research you know, done in the United States. Um, and yeah, that would be, I think, a very positive thing. Uh, you know, I think the rescheduling might change the 280E tax situation that we have, which means that there'd be more cash available for reinvestment at the operating level just from your own operations rather than shipping it off to Washington. Um, and I, I'd see, you know, that could be possible in the next four years as well. Um, I, I do think it'll stay a state's rights issue. I think different states will develop different ways of overseeing and, and uh, uh, regulating it. And the states have been pretty good about copying each other, right? You know, guys from Massachusetts go on a junket to Colorado and learn. Um, and so I think you'll see sort of best practices from a regulatory perspective propagate between all the states as well. You know, it's a great grand experiment. I don't want to sort of sound like the, uh, <laughs> kind of like I'm, Getting on a soapbox saying, you know, how wonderful, uh, how wonderful it is, because there's a, you know, a lot of stuff that needs to be fixed. But, you know, you got a lot of states, they're experimenting a lot of things. You got a lot of entrepreneurs who experiment a lot of things, and sort of the, the best will rise to the top. And I think people won't be shy about copying it and will ultimately uh, sort of meander towards a very functioning, widespread market with capital available for entrepreneurs to build great businesses. And that's, the trend, and I expect that to continue for the next four years. And, and you know, I mean, for everyone involved, you know, we all hope that that trend continues as well. You know, I've, uh, you know, my own fears about descheduling, uh, sort of thinking that it will allow the big pharma to, to enter the market, um, you know, but uh, that that's a conversation for another time, I think. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and, and look, they think big pharma, they're not going to be interested in, you know, the recreational market, right? They're going to be interested in developing big medicines that can help people. And you know, look, a lot of these medicines take hundreds of millions of dollars to develop. So uh, I got to tell you, people think of me as big weed. I don't have hundreds of millions of dollars to develop <laughs> a drug. You know, so if you want to make, you know, society a better place, you know, come up with something that's just a great use, you know, one of the 70 cannabinoids in the plant to solve some terrible disease that takes money. So, you know, I'm not averse to doing it. it. You don't want people to corner the market around it, but you know, if you can develop a life-saving drug and it takes that kind of money, okay, let someone come in and have that money and you know, it'll be on a regulated basis, just like pharma is and let them develop it. Uh, that, that could be beneficial. You know, so long as, they don't have a monopoly. <laughs> it's okay. Well, Hadley, I want to thank you so much for the opportunity to, to uh, chat with you. This has been, you know, a really, really enlightening conversation, I think, for, you know, me and, and, and a lot of people who may not understand uh, the finance side of it and who are afraid of uh, people with your background, you know, getting into the industry. I think that, you, you know, you're helping to quell some fears um, by being, you know, kind of on the forefront um, you know, on this issue. So I want to thank you so much for joining me on uh, today's episode. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it greatly. And hopefully you'll have me on again sometime in the near future. I certainly hope so.
You can find more episodes of the Gontrepreneur.com podcast in the podcast section of Gontrepreneur.com and the Apple iTunes store. On the Gontrepreneur.com website, you will find the latest cannabis news and cannabis jobs updated daily, along with transcripts of this podcast. You can also download this Gontrepreneur.com app in iTunes and Google Play. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Sebastiano. I've been your host, T.G. Brandfault. Thank you.